Hi, I'm Brooke, and I'm going to be reading from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 28. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church in the gates of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thanks, Brooke. And guys, thanks for being here. Glad to have you. My name is John Trapp. I'm the campus minister here at the University of Texas for RUF. And we're just glad to have you. And if this is your first time here, just to let you know a little bit about who we are, RUF is a place where we believe that nobody can be good enough to be beyond the need of God's grace. And also, it's a place where we believe that nobody can be bad enough to be beyond the reach of God's grace. And so because we think that that's what the Bible says, that means that we're, we all are in the same boat together. We're all equally in need of help. We need God's grace. And so what we've been looking at this semester is this person named Simon Peter. Because Simon Peter is, he's a man who over and over we see needs a lot of grace because he doesn't have it figured out. And so we've been looking at Jesus through Peter's eyes. And today I want to look at how Jesus is going to build on Peter. How he makes this really incredible statement to Peter that he's going to build his church on Peter. And so as we dive into this, let's, uh, let's pray first and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this time to be together, and I pray now that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts will be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Would you help us, and would you be gracious with us now? And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I want to look at three things tonight. First, I want to look at, and it's interesting, this is the first time, you may not know this, this is the first time that Jesus mentions the word church. He, never, he doesn't talk about the church in the Gospels until this really key moment in the life of Peter and of his disciples. And he starts talking about what his church is going to be like and who he's going to build his church on. And so I want to look at three things. The Messiah of the church, the material of the church, and the mission of the church. Okay? So first, let's look at the Messiah of the church. And 
Jesus is going, he's walking through this place called Caesarea Philippi with them. It's kind of towards the, in the middle of his ministry. He's done a lot of amazing things already. And he's going to ask them this really important question. And y'all know this intrinsically, that when and where you are when you ask a question matters. Like when I asked my wife to marry me, it wasn't something that I just kind of offhandedly did while we were watching TV. Now, I put a lot of thought into it. I would love to tell you the story about it sometime. It's really, really fun. Um, and I, basically, I, the, to hone it down a little bit, I made this huge, long scavenger hunt because she loves games and scavenger hunts. And uh, it was, our birthdays are five days apart. And so I waited until, we, we instead of getting each other presents, because our birthdays are close together and because... I'm not good at giving presents. We go on a birthday adventure. And we spent our money on like doing something fun and said, so I told her we were going to do a birthday adventure and that it was a scavenger hunt that I made for her. And then at the end of the scavenger hunt, I had her with her eyes closed in a rose garden, spinning in a circle five times. And when she opened her eyes, I was on my knee with the ring out. And it was, it's when and where a question happens that really matters. And... By the way, guys, as you're thinking about your Texas OU dates, maybe something to think about when and where matters. Don't do it right before, like the day before. Freshmen have probably already done it, so that's good. Um, just kidding, just kidding, freshmen. Um, so Jesus is with his disciples here, and you've got to consider when he's asking them this. He's, they've already seen him do a lot of stuff, They've seen Jesus, Peter has seen Jesus heal his mother-in-law when she was sick. Peter has seen Jesus raise a little girl from the dead. Peter has seen Jesus cast out demons from a man who had been living out in a graveyard. Peter sees Jesus calm a storm. Last week we talked about how Peter saw Jesus walk on the water and Peter actually walked with him for a bit until he started to doubt and sink in the water. And then Peter saw Jesus save him. Peter saw Jesus feed 5,000 people with a few people pieces of fish and bread. And I, I think that this is actually instructive because I want you to notice the pace of, of Jesus waiting to ask them who they think he is. That, in fact, Jesus, he's been with these guys for a long time before he asks. And I think that that's instructive because it might mean that Jesus might be moving at a much slower pace in your life or in a friend of yours life or a family member's life, he might, Jesus might be moving at a much slower pace than you would choose yourself. But he has been, he's been slowly revealing more and more of who he is to them. And now he comes to this place. Remember, where you ask a question matters too. He comes to this place called Caesarea Philippi, which is really, it's a beautiful place. I've actually seen it before. It's very fertile and beautiful. It's, it's near this mountain, and it's where the Jordan River kind of has the beginning of the river flowing, and there's a lot of life around there. There's a lot of ancient people groups that have lived around Caesarea Philippi. The, um, the, the village before, the town before was called Benias because it was a, the birthplace of the god Pan, and so it was named after Pan, who's the god of fertility. Um, and so there's these, all these temples to Pan, but also to all these other gods of ancient people groups who had lived there in the past. And now it's been renamed Caesarea Philippi because Herod has renamed it because he's, 
He's basically sucking up to, Phil, to, uh, to Caesar. He's, he's renamed the town after Caesar, and there's this huge temple dedicated to Caesar. And so here you have this place that has all of these temples of all of these other foreign gods, and in walks this kind of nobody, average-looking, son of a carpenter, poor, homeless, sunburned rabbi with his 12 ragamuffin disciples. And they're surrounded by all of this beauty and all of this religious power. And Jesus asks them this question. Who do you say that I am? And this is the question. It is the question that we are left to deal with, with Jesus as he reveals himself in the Bible. And my question for you then is, who do you think Jesus is? Because Jesus, Jesus doesn't give much wiggle room to say, you know what? He seems like he was a pretty cool dude, like a nice guy, and had some good teachings, but I don't think he was God. C.S. Lewis, who was an Oxford professor, he basically puts it this way. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. Those are kind of the only three options that we get because Jesus in the Bible makes these crazy claims. Like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Lewis says perhaps he is a liar. Perhaps he was lying about this the whole time. But for some reason... After he died, his disciples decided to continue the lie on. And not only that, but they all were killed for believing that lie. And they, all 12 of them took the lie to the grave. Which I guess could have happened, but that seems like pretty slim odds. If I'm Thomas and I'm about to be killed, I'm like, hold up, guys. Let me just, I was just kidding. This was a haul of, you know, if it comes down to your life, that might be something that you would have to think about. Maybe he was a lunatic. But if he was a lunatic, you have to reckon with the reality that Western civilization as we know it was built upon the reason, philosophy, and theology of a lunatic. Rodney Stark, who's a professor of sociology and religion at schools like Washington University, is the author of a book called The Victory of Reason. The Victory of Reason, How Christianity Led to Freedom, Capitalism, and Western Success. It's a really interesting book. He says this in it. Because the God of the Bible is a rational being, and the universe is his personal creation, it necessarily has a rational, lawful, stable structure awaiting increased human comprehension. This is the key to many many intellectual undertakings, among them the rise of science. What Stark is saying is that because of the teaching of Jesus Christ, this crazy advancement in human culture, in medicine, in science, in government, in human freedom, and viewing people with all people with dignity, these are all things that find their root, the things that we value as just Americans and individuals in the West, these were all birthed by the teaching of Jesus. And so maybe, 
Maybe he was a lunatic, but all of these things that we now enjoy are from the, t- the teaching of this man. And so he's either a lunatic or a liar, or maybe he is the Lord. And this is, this is the conclusion that Simon Peter is met with. But my question to you is, what kind of Lord is he? What kind of Lord is he? And this is important. The God of the Bible, as he reveals himself to people, and we see this with Peter, he starts with, who am I? Not, who are you? I'll say that again because it's important. The God of the Bible, when he introduces himself to someone, he starts with, who am I? Not, who are you? And this is important because the culture that we live in is a who are you culture. We live in a culture where your worth comes from who you are or what you do or how you look or who your parents are or what school you're able to get into. That is the water that we swim in. Some of you have heard me tell this story. When I introduced Chrissy to my family, I brought her back to Tuscumbia, Alabama, this small town that I grew up in. And we had met at Vanderbilt in college really excited about bringing her home and it was kind of a big deal for my friends and family back home I was the first person from my little high school who went out of state for college okay so I'm bringing this she's from Texas I'm bringing a Texas a Texan to Tuscumbia it blew people's minds and so my mom wants to introduce Chrissy to some of her friends and so she takes her to like the little women's boutique in downtown Tuscumbia. And it kind of, if you've, if you've seen like Steel Magnolias or like any, just kind of imagine that vibe at uh, First Pre- or at, 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 at Tuscumbia, um, the, uh, the store. So Chrissy goes to this uh, boutique with my mom, with her friends. And Chrissy quickly realizes that she's just kind of being paraded around, you know? <laughs> and she talks to them. She's trying not to be too nervous. Kind of feels like she's passing the test. As she walks out of the boutique, one of the ladies at the store kind of pokes her head out from behind one of the clothing racks. And she goes, well, Chrissy, we sure are glad you're cute because Lord knows if you weren't, we'd take you down to the river and drown you. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, and Chrissy was like, oh, thanks, bye. You know, as she's walking out the door. What is inferred in that statement? That your, your value is found in how you look. And that we, we have this, we experience this in academia. What's your resume, your GPA? We experience this socially. What neighborhood are you from? Who are your parents? Where did you, where'd you get a bid? in a fraternity or sorority. We, we have this quantified for us on social media with likes and followers and how many people slide into your DMs and all that kind of stuff. Um, I know you guys are racking those up, by the way. Good job. We have this, quant- we, we do this, this who are you um, kind of way of thinking and culture. We even, this comes into the way we think about religion. That, no, who, how serious are you about your faith? 
How, or we even, we even can think that God relates to us based on who we are, on how we can answer that question, who am I? That he relates to us based on how much we're praying or how much we're going to church. Uh, when I talk to a lot of you and I ask you about your, your faith or, you, or your relationship with God, you, you begin talking about how you wish you were reading your Bible more. You feel really bad about that. And I think even behind that, we, we can think like, man, if I was doing that more, then God would like me. Which, by the way, this is kind of an aside, but y'all know that like 95% of the world's population is illiterate. Like in the history of the world's population, like 95% were illiterate. So like most people in heaven didn't do quiet times. And also most of them didn't have Bibles because the printing press wasn't invented. So like, I mean, just, just something to chew on, think about. I'm not saying to not go and read your Bible. I would love for you to do that. But what I'm telling you is that that's not what makes you right with God. Because God is not someone, when, when you meet him, he doesn't ask, who are you? He asks, who am I? And that is a very important, important distinction. And so, Jesus, after spending all of this time with his disciples, in the midst of this place with all of these other seemingly powerful gods, with these big towering temples, he looks at his disciples and he says, who am I? See, the God of the Bible is different because that's where he starts. And this is key. Because God's currency is not your achievement. You don't have to show who you are or what you've done to come to him. Instead, he comes to you. God's currency instead of achievement is grace. And he shows this in the material that he chooses in building his church. He shows his grace in the kind of material he chooses to use as he builds his church. And we see this in Peter's confession. Verse 17. Even Peter's ability to confess, like Peter gets the right answer. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see that even, Peter, even Peter's correct answer, even Peter's ability to say the right thing, where did he get it from? From his Father in heaven. It, it, God is, he is that gracious that he even gives Peter the ability to see that you are the Christ, the Son of God. It's not because of who Peter is. It's because of the grace of the Father. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And listen to this. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're not made right by what we do or by our works. God loves you too much to leave the rescue up to you. We're not saved because of who we are, but because of who he is. And this is demonstrated in Peter, like in real time. Because Peter gives this amazing answer, and then Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And you might read that and think, whoa, Peter's the man. Peter gets it right. 
But if that's what you're thinking, I want you to think again. Because we've already seen what kind of rock, quote unquote, Peter is. He's the kind of rock who, when he's walking on the water, sinks like a rock. Because he starts to doubt Jesus. He's a doubter. Not only that, we're going to find that this kind of rock that Jesus is going to build his church on is the kind of rock who, when he's asked by a little girl if he believes in Jesus, he denies Jesus because he's such a coward. Not only that, but he curses Jesus. Not only that, but Peter gets things wrong over and over and over again throughout the rest of the Bible. He has bad theology. Peter's a racist later, you're going to find. This is the kind of church, this is the kind of person that Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on that person. Someone who is messed up. Someone who's going to have to repent and confess over and over and over again. Someone who I'm going to have to correct. Peter's going to have to get his racism corrected. Peter's going to have to get his cowardice corrected and worked on. But Jesus isn't showing him his grace because he's already got it figured out. Jesus is meeting Peter in his mess. And you see this, even there's this crazy irony that happens here. Because in verse 21, after Peter gets the right answer about who Jesus is, look again at verse 21. From that time, now Jesus is like, you're right, I am the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus is like, you know what? Yes, I am the Christ. I am the son of the living God. And you know what that means? It means I'm going to die. And when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, Peter has a very different idea of what that means. Because the Jews at that time were living under the oppression of, of Rome this incredibly powerful empire that was taxing them out to wazoo, that was oppressing all their people. And when Peter says, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, he thinks, you're going to make everything right here now. Like, you are going to lead us in a political revolution that is going to free us from Rome. And when Jesus says, you know what, I am the Christ, and that means I'm going to die, that goes against Peter's idea of what his Messiah is supposed to be. And so do you see what he does in the next verse? I think it's verse 22. Yeah, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It's incredibly ironic. Peter has just said, you're the Christ. You are the son of God. And then Jesus says something that Peter doesn't like, and Peter's like, hey, come here, Jesus. I need to explain something to you. He begins to rebuke the person he has just confessed as the son of God. And that is when Jesus... Peter goes from being kind of the man to like the worst of the worst in like the course of six verses. Because then Peter, Jesus' response to that, he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Peter has just gone from being the first person to confess Jesus as the Christ in the book of Matthew. Like Peter gets the right answer. Ding, ding, ding. You win the prize, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) It's like, whoa, whiplash. That happened. That went downhill real fast. Why does that happen? Because what is satanic about what Peter is saying is like 
Peter wants the crown without the cross. And that is, my, my UF campus minister used to say, danger doesn't always ride up on a Harley wearing a leather jacket. In other words, like danger isn't always like really obvious to us. The way that Satan often works is he comes, he doesn't come to you and say, bow down to me. What Satan does is he tempts you to worship yourself. Because that is, that is what Satan does. And he would hold out to you the same thing. That you will find happiness and pleasure, satisfaction, and self-worship. And what Peter wants, what he thinks he needs is freedom from Rome and a new ruler over Israel and that Jesus is going to get it right. And when Jesus tells him, you know what, you're going to get a very different kind of Messiah, Peter has a massive problem with that. But Jesus does this. He rebukes Peter because he loves him. He does this Because this is the Christian life, slipping, failing, and forgetting, and having our own agenda, and Jesus intervening. Because Jesus takes weak rocks like Peter, and he begins building us into a church. Listen to what Peter says later in his life in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. As you come to him, Jesus... A living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You hear what he says about Jesus? Jesus was a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Peter says, you yourselves are like living stones, being built up as a spiritual house. So Peter says, listen, I am the weak stone that the church was going to be built upon. But it's not just me. All of us are stones. We're living stones being built together in one community, but we're all weak. Here's what that means. A pastor friend of mine uh, was pastoring somebody who was struggling with sex addiction and pornography addiction. And this friend of his was going to um, like a help group where they would talk about uh, their pornography addiction. And so... uh, the, my pastor buddy said, hey, can I, would it be okay with you if I, if I came with you one time and just sat with you and supported you? And he's like, yeah, sure. So my pastor buddy goes to this room. They're all sitting in a circle. And people start to share about their addiction. And my pastor buddy's like, I'll never forget it. This guy started to talk about this very personal experience that was going on with him. And he starts kind of telling this story. He's like, you know, I'm in my room, and I was stressed out, and I went to go get my computer, and knew that nobody else was in the room, and nobody else was around. And he said, all of a sudden, like six or seven people in the circle raised their hands. And my my pastor buddy was like, this is awkward. Why are they going to ask him a question about that? Like, let him finish the story. They all put their hands down while he keeps talking. And he keeps telling him more and more about his struggle and the temptation and the things that he was maybe going to do. And they keep raising their hands over and over again. He's like, why are they doing that? And the, the session ends, 
And the person who was leading the, the conversation afterwards comes up to my buddy, and he's like, well, what do you think? And he said, I thought it was great, but it was very strange how everyone kept raising their hands. Why, why were they interrupting each other and trying to ask questions? And he starts, the, the counselor starts laughing. He's like, no, 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 no. They weren't, they weren't asking questions. That's one of the practices that we do is when somebody else struggles with something that we struggle with, we raise our hand. Because then you know that you're not alone. And what Peter is saying is, listen, all of us are living stones. And just like I am the weak rock that Jesus has used to build his church, you are too. And what that means for us, because we all, none of us earned God's grace, but we've all been given it by his grace. And we're all needy, we're all sinners, and we're all broken. Do you know what that means we can do? That we can be hand raisers. That as we struggle and as our friends share their struggle, we can be welcomed into that. We can actually be people who raise our hands together and say, yeah, me too. Yeah, I need grace too. I struggle with that too. Because the good news is that Jesus dies for these rocks. For people who fail him. And he dies for them and restores them and builds them into his church. John Stott, who's a late theologian, he he summarizes it this way, and this is so, so beautiful. He says, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. That's what Peter's doing here with Jesus. Jesus begins telling Peter what's going to happen. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. I know what you need to do. I know what the Messiah should be like. Peter is substituting himself for God. All right, I'll read it again. The essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God put himself where we deserve to be. The good news of the gospel is that that God went to the cross for you, to the place where I deserve, where we deserve to be. I mean, do you do you ever just have these fleeting thoughts, or maybe they're not so fleeting for you, where you're just like, God, I hate myself today. Because I don't never feel that way. I'm just, no, I'm just, <laughs> I do. What this is saying is it doesn't, God, God actually loves you more than you do. That not only does he love you, he likes you in Christ. So much so that he has made a way so that anyone who would call out to him, who would believe in him, not because of what they've done, because of what Jesus has done for them, he makes the way for them to know him, to be part of his church. So what? Last point, the mission of the church. The mission of the church Jesus sums it up. As Peter is like struggling with wrapping his mind around this, Jesus says, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's interesting. Many other world religions, they, t- they, they tell you to deny yourself of something. It could be your, your clothing choice or deny yourself of alcohol. Some religions say you have to deny yourself of serving in the military. Some religions say you have to d- deny yourself drinking caffeinated beverages. What Jesus says, he doesn't say you have to deny any of these things. Jesus says you have to deny yourself. Not all those other things. You have to deny yourself and follow me. Peter, you want to follow me? Give up your agenda. You've got to give up your agenda for who I, what I'm going to do in your life and instead take up my agenda for you. And you know what Jesus' agenda is for you? that you would live in light of his love. That you would know that you were loved. Not by what you have done, but by his grace, and that you would believe upon him. That's his agenda for you. That you would confess and believe. And because we have been given this love, because of that, then we begin to love other people with the overflow of that love. Not in order to get God to like us, but because we already do. And that is what picking up your cross looks like. Most of you probably aren't going to pick up your cross and literally go die for your faith. What I think this actually looks like is little moment by moment and day by day opportunities to die for Jesus. That's what he calls us to Like for me, when I get home and I'm tired and I've been writing a sermon all day or I've been having coffee with people all day and I just kind of want to like sit down and zone out, it feels like dying. That is a really fun ringtone. It feels, (laughs) and that moment, it feels like dying to get down on the floor and play with my kids and not to just go pick up the TV remote, but dying to myself. I don't do it to earn God's love. I'm called to do it, to live in light of his love for me that I already have. So Jesus calls for us, what we do is we become hand raisers. That feels like dying. When somebody else says, I'm struggling with this, be like, yeah, me too. I struggle with that too. That feels like dying. Laying down your own good for the good of another. We do it because Jesus did it for us. And I want you to think about this. Is it worth it? The disciples certainly thought so. And I've always found this to be very compelling because um, most historians and church tradition holds that all of the disciples died horrible deaths. Did you know that? Except for John. John died of old age. But These guys lived with Jesus for three years. They saw him do all this crazy stuff. They saw him die. And when when he was arrested, they all ran away. They all hid. They're all scared. Peter denied Jesus. And then something happened. Something happened that caused them to be willing to go to the ends of the earth and tell everyone about the good news of the gospel and to die telling it. Something happened. Listen to how all of them died. Andrew, Peter's brother, 
died on a cross at Petra in Acacia, which is a Grecian colony. James was beheaded at Jerusalem. Uh, the other James, one of Jesus' brothers, was thrown, into, was thrown from a pinnacle of the temple and then beaten to death with a club. John died of old age in Ephesus. Thaddeus was shot to death with arrows. Matthew was crucified in Alexandria. Nathaniel was flayed alive and beheaded in Armenia. Philip was hanged from a pillar at Heropolis. Thomas was run through the body with a lance in the East Indies. And Peter was crucified head downward on a cross in Persia during the persecution of Nero. All of these guys went from being really scared and running away to like, we have to tell everyone about this. I think they saw Jesus rise from the dead. I think they realized that Jesus loves sinners and that it's such good news we have to tell people about it. If this is true, it changes everything. He's a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. Who do you say he is? Let me pray for us. Father, thanks so much for your word and for how you reveal your son to us in it. And we thank you that your grace is really this big, as it says. And so, Lord, I pray that um, you might cause this to go deep into our hearts and that you would help us to understand what it means to live lives of joy because of your love that we have in you and that we might live in light of that for the good of this world and for the good of others. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.